everyone. Welcome to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and of course, I'm joined today by Jeremy Greenfield of Digital Book World. Jeremy, I'm sure you're working like a madman right now. Well, Digital Book World is coming up fast. It's next. It's Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And uh, yes, we are working like crazy. I will be working all weekend. So if you uh, are bored and want to call someone in the office and torture them, tell them all the fun things you're doing, Michael, give me a ring. <laughs> all right. So lots of Barnes Noble news. I was remiss in following this adequately because I was pounding the floors at the Consumer Electronics Show, which I'll tell you all about in a few minutes, but major Barnes & Noble news. Right. So there are a couple of things that happened this week. Um, Barnes & Noble has a new CEO, Michael Hoosby. Hoosby was most recently CEO of the Nook Media Division and president of the company, reporting to Chairman Len Riggio. He was sort of the interim CEO in a way, but they made it really official here. His background is he was CFO at Barnes & Noble starting in early 2012, and all the speculation was that he was brought in to help break up and sell the company. He came from uh, Cablevision, and he was paid very, very handsomely for helping uh, that company maneuver, do some financial maneuvering, uh, and he has an accounting background. He spent 23 years as an equity partner at the now defunct uh, firm Arthur Anderson. So uh, that's the speculation on Hoosby, and he doesn't really have any retail operational experience. So if the company doesn't plan on selling itself, breaking up, raising money, uh, why does it have a financial guy at its head instead of a retail guy or a technology guy? Uh, so that's the speculation on Hoosby, and I, and I happen to think that it's correct. I happen to think that before the year is over, we will see some significant financial activity at Nook. And the main reason why is the other big news of the week, which is that Nook announced, Barnes & Noble announced its holiday sales results, and they were extremely poor. Are you surprised? Um, uh, I'm only surprised by how poor they were. It, it's almost as if the, the folks at Nook have given up trying. Um, the, the Nook division was down 60% versus the previous year, led by a decrease in device sales revenue, but also digital content revenue was significantly down. And, um, you know, I think that the company is now getting very small. It's risking its viability as a real competitor in the ebook retail marketplace. Um, the rest of Barnes & Noble did okay. Uh, less decrease in sales than the previous year on the retail side. Um, but at the Nook division, things are very challenged. And if I worked there, I would be very concerned. Well, you look at their device portfolio offering for you know Q4 or the holiday season. All their tablets are more than a year old now, and they just have one single new product, which was the Nook Glowlight, uh, the second generation front lit e-reader that we reviewed, and I actually did not like. I thought. Yeah, it looked like a kid's toy, basically. So you can check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash goodyreader, and just search for Nook to uh, check out our unboxing, drop test videos, comparisons against other e-readers. It, yeah, it's, it's bubbly, it's cartoony. I could see why it didn't really sell that well. And most people these days are gravitating towards tablets anyways instead of uh, dedicated e-ink-based e-readers. Although... Some companies are doing well. You know, I talked to Kobo at Pepcom, and they said that their e-reading sales in terms of e-ink devices are actually outselling tablets. So um, that was a bit of a surprise there. When it comes to Barnes & Noble, if you were to put on your, uh, you know, wizard hat, bust out your crystal ball, 
where do you see the you know with the new management going in the next six months? I think that the new management will seek to uh, change the company in a significant way. I, I think if I had to guess that the new management will um, consider breaking up the company. I think that it could be a divestment of Nook um, or a very significant change in the Nook business, for instance, going away from hardware altogether, um, or maybe a divestment of the college bookstores, um, or maybe Lenrigio takes the retail chain private. Uh, I think that we're in for uh, some significant financial activity from Barnes & Noble. And when we talked to about a dozen publishing experts uh, at the end of last year, their predictions for uh, book publishing in, in 2014, um, closing Nook and, and taking Barnes & Noble retail private was the number one prediction across our experts. So I think that that is the, the most likely uh, thing to occur at that company the next year. Do you think that they'll be able to find other people willing to sink money into a sinking ship? Um, Microsoft, you know, has has put um, major money into the Nook division, and you know they're actually part owner of it. Do you think Microsoft is a, a likely candidate to, you know, to sink more money into Barnes Noble or to play the role of savior? I honestly don't know. Um, Barnes and Noble, or Microsoft, I'm sorry, obviously has a multi-multi-multi-billion dollar war chest, but as many billions as you have to make money on investments, you, you don't get there by, by, by placing too many losing bets. Um, although Microsoft has had many famous um, bad investments, especially in breaking into new kinds of technology beyond its core competencies. Um, so I don't really know the answer to that question of, of which companies um, you know, might, might be there to acquire the company. But I, I do think that if we do see an acquisition, it's going to be at a fairly low valuation, a valuation that's going to surprise some people um, because uh, the Nook division has just lost so much money and also lost any momentum. Uh, before William Lynch left, he was the former CEO, uh, he, on a conference call with investors, said, uh, and this was about a year and a half ago prior to last year's holiday season, you know, we expect that digital content sales will ramp up, and that is what is going to turn the corner for Nook, that that's where the profits were, are going to come from and, and how we're going to make money. Um, and that holiday season was a disaster for Nook. Not only did it not grow, but it actually shrank compared, uh, and compared to its competitors, it really shrank. Um, so I think that, that investors that take a look at this company are going to get it uh, for, for less than we expect. That's uh, very interesting. So I was at uh, the Consumer Electronics Show uh, from Monday to – I just got back late last night. And if you guys aren't familiar with it, it's pretty well the largest tech trade show uh, in North America. And there's literally millions of square foot per conference hall. Every major player and minor player was there. I think I must have walked about – I don't know, about 40 hours straight just walking uh, in amongst the entire trip. So I, I'm good. And um, I kind of picked up uh, some major themes uh, from the show. In the past, there's been some themes. Like there was the theme in uh, 2009, which was all e-readers. 2010, which was like all about tablets. And then this year, it's all about wearable tech. So smartwatches, Fitbit, uh, new alternatives, and curved TVs. 
And before we started the show, I was talking to a little bit about Curve TVs, and it didn't really seem like it was captivating you. You know, to me, a lot of those improvements are marginal. Now, when the iPod came out, when the iPhone came out, when the iPad came out, um, it was so clear when seeing those things presented to the press that this was going to change a lot of things or fail miserably at trying. I feel like something like the curvature of a TV or that remember that backlighting on TV craze, I don't think that changes the industry. It might help generate incremental sales. Maybe some early adopters really enjoy it. Maybe in five years, all TVs will be slightly curved. Um, but it just is not an innovation that really excites me. Maybe I'm just not a geek for technology, i got to say. Yeah. Um, I guess the rationale behind curved TVs is we, we're all used to flat. You know, We're used to flat LCD monitors, flat televisions. And they say with curved screens, it'll actually give you a bit of a viewing experience because it's, our, our eyes are naturally going to be able to immerse yourself a little bit more on curved. If you look at IMAX, they, that's sort of what they do. It's, it's a curved screen. And so it kind of gives you a little bit better of experience for those types of movies. So what we were looking at was a lot of uh, 4K television street, uh, you know, television sets. So we're used to 1080p as being the higher highest resolution. This is like 4,000 uh, pixels. So it's supposed to give you a better experience by about four times. And looking at a bunch of demo stuff, I mean, it looks fairly impressive. The, the, is it really that much better? I mean, you know, you saw um, what was that big Fox movie about the the blue aliens and the and the planet with the mysterious Avatar valuable Avatar. So you saw Avatar. You probably saw it on on IMAX or a big screen with 3D and and it was super sharp and and super great to look at. I mean, is it is it better than that? Yes. So easily better than that. Any 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 idiot like myself could just tell. You yeah, I mean you. They had a lot of TVs like 1080p and 4K side by side, showing the exact same images, and it was very clear that 4K TV is the future. And there's a lot of companies betting on it. Netflix uh, and Amazon have both committed themselves to streaming 4K over the internet, over connections, in order to give you sort of that next generation content. Because I think 4K TVs have been around for about about almost two years now, maybe a little bit less, but it's the content that's really holding a lot of people back from making that investment. It's like 3D TVs. There's really not a lot of 3D movies out there. Or there's, you know, if you're subscribing to some sort of cable service or, you know, uh, if you have your Apple TV or Roku box, you're not really going to get a lot of 3D content in order to really take advantage of your TV. You know, you can buy a 3D Blu-ray player and any new release, there's a 3D version. But, you know, you look at the amount of content available, it's maybe a few hundred movies total. Um, for, mm-hmm. Whereas Google is making a new video format that will allow YouTube videos to be able to be able to be broadcast in 4K as well. So if you have a 4K camera, you'll be able to upload 4K videos and people with, you know, better monitors, um, more computer monitors now are are 4K. People are hooking their computers up to their television. So you'll be able to actually broadcast and watch YouTube videos in 4K. So I think that this is the way that the internet 
as well as streaming services, that's really the way it's going because if you look at your average TV 1080p and then 4K TVs 4,000 pixels, that's, you know, it's like 1080p times 4. So I, I was really impressed. I think the one TV that impressed me the most was uh, LG's lineup of TVs. They actually had a flat screen TV controlled by a little bit of a motor so it can go from a flat screen to a curved screen TV. I thought that that was interesting. And it looks like... That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't make a lot of noise either. It wasn't like a... You know? Uh, it didn't seem like you had like a crane in your house, you know, moving directions. But it looks like LG is actually doing something with WebOS. And WebOS famously pioneered by Palm. You know, they had uh, a lot mm -hmm. of phones using WebOS. They sold it to HP. HP released the touchpad, which was sort of their Apple you know, we're going to, this is going to be the next iPad. I think it survived for about three months before they discontinued it. And then they were looking for a buyer. They sold it to LG and now LG is actually using WebOS and all of their new television sets. So it's sort of a new operating system for smart TVs. And I think this is cool because it actually gives like developers a chance to make television apps using like an, uh, a very easy to use uh, programming platform. So when we were looking at the H, um, the LG store, you know, they had Skype and they had Netflix and they had Twitter and you know all the famous apps. But they had like minor apps too that you don't really see a lot of. Um, you know, Crackle and um, iHeartRadio and you know there was Amazon Instant Video and and things like that. So it looks like LG is betting huge on on WebOS as being a television platform instead of a platform for mobile phones or for tablets and things like that. So the other thing on CS this year, which was the major trend, was smartwatches. And you know, you sure people have heard of the Pebble? You know. Uh, Pebble got a lot of news with their Kickstarter campaign, and they were really one of the first smartwatches to really gain uh, mainstream attention. And it really seemed like this year there was about eight or nine different companies demoing different smartwatches. Didn't really seem that compelling to me. Nothing that really was like, oh man, I gotta have this, you know? Um, but it seems like more people are getting involved in the space, so hopefully that will like accelerate development people will take more risks with design in the end maybe hopefully the consumers will win increased competition more units being pushed hopefully they'll drive the price down and people be willing to give that sort of stuff a chance yeah absolutely uh you know in terms of the the, the web os with the the tvs i think that's the way to go a lot of these uh, a lot of content creation companies are, are hungry for platforms where they can actually reach people so um, you know, providing that platform and being a pioneer in that, if, if it does take off, would, would be very beneficial. And with the, the wearable technology, I mean, I'd like to sit back and, and wait and see where it goes. Um, from a personal standpoint, I guess I don't think I'm that interested right now, but, but who knows what kind of useful innovations these companies will come up with. They always tend to surprise us. I agree. Um, one of the coolest booths that I checked out this year was uh, the e-ink booth. And they had a lot of kind of cool tech that didn't, hasn't really made it to North America yet or is in the prototype stage. So, Jeremy, did you ever hear of the Yoda phone? Yes. Okay, so 
I actually got a chance to play with it. It's an uh, Android screen on one side and e-ink screen on the other side, and it was terrible. Okay. Like, totally abysmal. Um, I'm, I'm tech savvy, you know, I have a lot of gadgets and, and doodads. I'm looking at my computer desk now, I have, you know, three tablets, a Blackberry phone, an iPhone, and a Samsung Galaxy, and um, an e-ink watch, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to having cool tech. This phone sucked. It was like... No physical buttons. Everything was like software. When you actually use the e-ink screen, there was like major ghosting. Training pages was like, you know, not tapping on the screen like, you know, most apps and most devices. You know, you tap the left or right-hand screen, you know, go forward in a book, go back. They had this weird control system where you had to like swipe on the bezel and then some books required you to actually hit the volume buttons. And if, like, the back LCD screen was on, your e-ink screen was, like, unresponsive. Um, yeah, it was, like, it was, like, terrible that I would rate it as, like, avoid at all costs. I'd put it in that category. Avoid at all costs. Well, I should have no trouble that doing that. Yeah. It's a, it's a neat idea, but I've already got a pretty good phone. Yeah. And speaking of phones, um, we checked out the pocketbook cover, which was, it's a case for your phone, but it actually is an e-ink screen. So you can actually uh, be reading a book on your LCD screen and then initiate the e-ink mode. So you can actually read a book on e-ink, protect your phone, and actually have almost like a dual screen phone to read e-books. You know, How much is this uh, product going to cost? I think it's about... $80, $90, maybe a little bit cheaper. I mean, that's a lot of money for something that, you know, cases are generally much cheaper. E-readers aren't much more expensive, if, if even much more expensive at all. And it's probably a really tiny e-reader. But uh, I guess it has a dual purpose and it's useful. What, what do you think? Are you going to get one? It's Well, it's 4.8 inches. So it's about as big of a screen as, like, say, your Samsung Galaxy. And I would also put this in a category of avoid at all costs. It was, oh, really? Yeah, okay. it was, like, it's clunky. It felt cheap. It was just, like, you know, if you're going to buy, if you want an e-ink display, buy an e-reader. Don't buy, like, a crappy accessory for your phone that's going to, like, why the hell did I buy this? I'm so jaded. E-ink sucks. Blah, blah, blah. Right? So... Yeah, unfortunately, almost all the tech that I saw was terrible. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I know how much you, you like these things. Yeah. Um, I also saw the Pocketbook CAD, which was about a 13-inch e-reader. And mm -hmm. it's geared towards, like, people who use uh, AutoCAD software, so, like, Autodesk and things like that. People who do drawings and schematics and, you know, have to bring uh, architectural design into the field. So this is um, a way that instead of bringing a tablet, which, you know, most people I talked to at CS were like, yeah, I've charged my tablet, like, two times already today. And it was, like, only, like, 1 o'clock. So... Yeah, and tablets take a long time to charge, huh? Yeah. So this is, like... Basically, you could think of it as a big screen e-reader that's its only purpose is to like work, edit, and and show design schematics. It's not meant to—it's not meant to like read books or anything like that. 
I thought it was very interesting. It's it was hella light for like a 13 inch, you know, e-reader. It was mm -hmm. like really, really, really light. So I think that that's the thing that had going for it. It was harsh prototype, so the software and UI wasn't really polished. But the it, in terms of like the the finished product, it it looked really nice. So I think that that actually has some mad potential, but for a very niche segment. Sounds good to me. Okay, so Jeremy, you know, I didn't really follow the industry or anything like that this week. Was there anything interesting else besides the Barnes & Noble news that I missed? Yeah, there, there were a couple little things here and there, but there's only one thing I really want to mention, which is um, Digital Book World and Writer's Digest released some of the first results from our annual author survey. And last year we surveyed about 5,000 authors about their preferences in publishing and many, many other issues. This year we went deeper. We had 9,000 authors, and we had uh, a Harvard PhD social scientist uh, create, craft the survey, craft the study, and then actually write the report. Uh, and the, we, we released the first result this week, um, although the rest of the results are going to be in a report that people can purchase uh, on Wednesday. Um, and they will also be presented on Wednesday at Digital Book World in New York. So, the, But the main result that we released was about how authors want to publish their next book. And um, overwhelmingly, authors, aspiring authors, self-published authors, traditionally published authors, and what we call hybrid authors who both are traditionally published and self-published are in favor of working with traditional publishers. Um, in fact, the majority of each of those groups would prefer to traditionally publish rather than self-publish. Even self-published authors who are the most bullish on self-publishing, across the board they, they prefer to traditionally publish their next book. So while traditional publishers should definitely worry about you know, the threat of self-publishing and losing their authors and losing their prestigious position in the industry, they also should know that for the time being, still most authors would prefer to work with them than not. That's actually very interesting because not too long ago, indie authors or self-published authors were, they were almost like zealot in, in terms of, I'm a proud indie author, I'll never you know do anything, I want to be in control of my own destiny. Do you see that mentality has changed? Uh, you know, outwardly, publicly, that that's still there. I mean, we're publishing these blog posts about these findings, and we're getting a lot of indie authors angry at us. I don't know why, because we're just presenting the survey data. Um, but when they answer surveys, and I think you know they're probably more honest and private than they would be in public, uh, indie authors still very much favor traditional publishing um, compared to to self-publishing. But, but the main message of our survey results, and I don't want to spoil it too much, is that authors in general are not happy with self-publishing or traditional publishing. They have a lot of gripes about both of them. I mean, they're almost like cable company customers. Everybody has cable, but everyone hates their cable company. Um, so even if you have satellite, you hate your satellite company. So no matter what authors do, they seem to sort of just hate their provider. So what do you, you know, if is there any perfect solution? You know, it seems that hybrid authors are probably, they have a little bit more control because, you know, they either have, they have traditional publishing experience, they have self-publishing experience. So they kind of know both worlds. Whereas, you know, uh, self-published authors, the self-publishing world is all that they know. 
Um, and so do you think it's more or less they're very interested in something they have no experience with, which is kind of like why they kind of maybe want to walk down that road? What do you think, you know, if you look at the perspective of the average self-published author, what do you think a traditional publishing deal will give them that's so appealing? So I think the main message in terms of the future and, and what's going to happen is that, you know, the, the world of authors is kind of up for grabs right now. Uh, it used to be that publishers had a complete lockdown on, on reaching a wide audience, and that's just not the case anymore. Um, but, you know, just because authors can self-publish and get that much higher royalty rate doesn't mean that they want to and that they're going to. So, so the world of authors, I think, is, is up for grabs is, is one of the main messages. And I think that, you know, self-publishing service providers and publishers alike should know that and should tailor their services to, to make authors, you know, happier. Um, I don't know if, you know, a big five traditional publishing contract is going to go through any significant changes this year or next year as a result of this, these revelations. Um, but I think across the board, publishers and self-publishing service providers are starting to understand what their customers want, and their customers being authors in this case, of course. You know, um, I, I think that maybe self-published authors are maybe, a, they, they buy into the hype. You know, you look at a lot of the successful self-publishers that end up getting big deals. Uh, Sylvia Day, you know, Bella Andre, Hugh Howie, you know, people who cut their teeth self-publishing and then ended up getting big deals due to the traditional publishers. And you look at those success stories and you say, hey, why not me? And what I think was very interesting about maybe this last year was indie authors or self-published authors actually getting deals as part of contests. So National Novel Writing Month, uh, sure. Wattpad has had, um, has had contests where people have gotten deals with uh, romance imprints of like Harlequin and things like that. And a lot of publishers pay attention to National Novel Writing Month because you have people who, you know, almost crowdsource this type of thing where people are like, yeah, this, this book is amazing. And then, you know, they get picked up. So where do you see, you know, uh, there's, there's a dirge of, of self-publishers. There's, it's very skewed on how many self-publishers exist and are publishing content versus authors who belong to, um, you know, big publishing companies or their imprints. So, if you're a self-published author and if you want to get picked up, you know, in a contract or, you know, you want to, you know, get picked up, you want to get signed, you know, you want a little bit more security in terms of being able to rely on a team of people instead of just relying on yourself. If I was a self-published author, Jeremy, what advice would you give me to, you know, to, to make it, to get signed, to get published? I, the number one piece of advice is write great books. Um, you know, in, in a world where authors have more control over different aspects of the business, they start to think about those other aspects of the business more than they used to. Uh, so, you know, back in the day when publishers were really your, your only path to distribution, you would focus on, man, I've got to make this the greatest book I can, and I've got to worry about finding an agent. Uh, but now it's, I've got to make this the greatest book I can. I'm trying to find an agent. I'm trying to 
investigate self-publishing. I'm trying to build my author platform. I'm trying to learn about how to distribute. I'm, I'm thinking about cover designers and copy editors and, and all those other things. Um, but I think if you really want to get signed, and, and to be honest, I think if you want to have a rewarding experience as an author, whether that's financial or achieving your other goals, the number one thing to focus on is the quality of your book. Um, and I think part of it is, is work that only you can do writing, thinking, researching, um, but part of it is also hiring copy editors and, and hiring designers and, and hiring the right and paying the right people to do things. Um, so that's the number one thing I would focus on. Uh, the number two thing that I would think about if I, if I wanted to get a traditional publishing contract is getting an agent because overwhelmingly uh, agents are the path to traditional publishers for a variety of reasons. Um, and you know, Writer's Digest magazine, a sister publication to the book world, uh, is frequently publishing information about how to attract agents. And I highly recommend authors go check that out. And I guess one of the avenues that authors could check things out is the Digital Book World Conference starting next week. That's right. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Digital Book World Conference. It's the biggest and best one ever. Uh, we've said that every year that I've been here. But every year it's been true, and this year it is more true than ever because it's just a huge conference. We blew all of our expectations out of the water when it comes to how many people are going to be there, how many exhibitors will be there, and the level of buzz and enthusiasm is just huge. I and mean, we've already had write-ups and publications like the LA Times talking about the conference next week, and it hasn't even happened yet. Nice. Um, the, the, we're, we're at the BBC is going to be there filming a documentary about Amazon. We've got radio, press, television. Um, Tons of print reporters and web reporters from major publications and trade publications uh, are going to be there. So it's going to be a really exciting time from that standpoint, and, and everyone will get to read about it even if they don't get to attend. I mean, that said, there's, this, there's no substitute for actually being there, uh, you know, meeting the people face-to-face -face and uh, you know, shaking hands and getting to know people over a coffee or over a drink. Um, I'm just super excited about everything. You know, the programming is unparalleled. Uh, it's it's the best we've ever had. It's it's a huge amount of activity over three days. Um, but the two things I want to tell your audience about and you about, Michael, because I think you should go to them also, are two of the evening events we have planned. Uh, Monday night, we're doing a screening of a film called Out of Print. It's about what's going on in, in publishing right now. It's an hour-long film. It's very good, and. Um, it, and I'm moderating a panel with the director and Jane Friedman from Open Road and a few other uh, VIPs uh, who are involved in the movie after the film. Uh, and all of the proceeds from this event, uh, it's a separate event uh, that, that one has to pay for, go to a very worthy charity in New York, the Goddard Riverside Center, which helps uh, folks who are homeless or formerly homeless get back on their feet. Um, and it's $75 for the screening uh, and the panel discussion. And it's, it's for a good cause. And I think we're almost sold out, so anyone who's interested, please get their tickets now. And the second thing is, and I know you're excited about this because I, I know you love this stuff, we're having our Digital Book Awards Gala on Tuesday night, hosted by none other than LeVar Burton. Uh, Jordy LaForge. That's right, also the founder of Reading Rainbow. Yes. Um, so, and that, that's why he's there. He's hosting it. I've spoken with uh, him and his team about it. He's excited. The stuff he's going to do on stage is fantastic. And we're actually going to be giving away three Kobo tablets throughout the course of the evening. Um, so that is also a separate ticket from Digital Book World. Uh, it's $100. You get dinner, cocktails, uh, and LeVar Burton, Jordan the Forge, as you said, plus uh, Reading Rainbow, plus Kunta Kinte from Roots, of course, <laughs> uh, will we'll also be there. 
Um, and uh, a lot of great, great books, uh, great enhanced e-books and apps that are going to be honored um, that night. And of course, you could win a Kobo tablet. And if you're in the market for a tablet, these are these tablets are three or four hundred bucks each. Uh, and uh, so that that pays for the the ticket price, obviously, many times over. So um, I know that this is this is coming up Monday, so it's it's starting very soon. So where do you you know if I wanted to go, where do I go to buy tickets or to you know find out which sessions I want to go to? If if, if, if I want to know is this conference good 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 for me? Where do I go? Where do I sign up? Oh my God, there are so many great places I can send you, but I guess you should go right to the source, conference.digitalbookworld.com. Okay, and this radio show on our website, goodyreader.com, as well as uh, from the Digital Book World newsletter, will include links on where you can go, where you can sign up, and where you can learn more. If you're, This is great if you are an indie author because there's pretty well, almost every digital publishing company is going to be opening up a booth there or there's going to be people pounding the floor so if you want to get involved in self-publishing if you're looking for the best distribution system or if you're an author looking to cross over from the self-published world to the traditional publishing world this is the wellspring of contacts of companies of people that you could talk to and find things out a lot easier than you could a message board or a read it thread or Talking to other authors on Goodreads, this is the place to go, Digital Book World Conference, starting very early next week. So check that out. And you've been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show. We've covered a lot of great topics today. Drop a comment on this if you want to learn more or if you have any ideas for future episodes. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for joining. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure as always. All right. Uh, we'll talk to everybody after a while. <laughs>